Our sermon text today is from James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 2 through 18, though we're going to focus on verses 2 through 4 and 12 through 18. So again, give your attention to the holy word of our God. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us understanding in it, shape our thoughts, our words, and our actions by these words, so that we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Clearly, this passage in James has trials as one of its main themes. And what do you think about when you think of trials? They're they're usually hard. In some way, they push us to our limits. And if you're not in the midst of a trial right now, I'm sure that you would prefer to keep it that way. No, No trials, please. But if you are in the midst of a trial, then... You want to know how to get it to end. How do I get out of this? But you may have already noticed, as we read through the passage, James doesn't view trials that way at all. He says to consider them joy. Now, how can that be? How can you consider it joy when trials come? And before digging into this passage, I'm going to tell you about two different people 
These are real people, true stories of their lives. The first person you probably wouldn't know, but just to make sure, I'm going to call him George. A few decades ago, George felt called of God to Christian ministry. He he went to a Bible college in England, and after that, he was appointed as a pastor of a church. He was a good speaker. He had good people skills. He understood the scriptures well. And before long, men and women were being converted, and the church grew. However, after a few years, George was caught in adultery with a member of the church. He resigned, and he seemed to disappear. But in fact, he went to Canada, where he went to seminary. And after seminary, he became pastor of a church in Canada. As the years went by, things were going well. People were converted, the church was growing. But eventually, he was again caught in adultery. He resigned again and disappeared. Many years later, there was a church in the suburbs of Chicago, and they were looking for some interim pastoral help because they'd just gone through a trauma as a church. They'd had a minister who was very gifted. The church had grown, but he had been caught in adultery. And now there was a mess. Broken lives, hurts, wounds, and of course, that minister was George. After that, George went into selling computer components in Ohio. So I won't go into all of the questions that could be asked about all of that. But if you ask George, what went wrong? Why did you repeat the same wretched sin three times? You know what his answer would be? I fell because God is a liar. And you say, what? Yeah, God says no temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man? And he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. I wasn't able to bear it. So God's a liar. And he'll end the conversation there. That's George. And you might even ask, oh, I thought this was about trials. Where are the trials there? Well, George had the trial of a fruitful, successful church ministry. Every church grew. So, so even success, which, which doesn't seem hard like a lot of trials, even success is a trial or a test, and George failed miserably. The second person in, in the same time period was a man by the name of Norman Anderson. Now, Norman went to Cambridge University. He was a Christian, and he, he was very brilliant. He married a young woman named Pat, and they went to Egypt to become missionaries. He became very fluent in Arabic, and he was so good at it even that he was conscripted by the British Army for many years for counterintelligence. Eventually, he moved to London. He became a professor. He did many things for people, and he was even knighted by the Queen and became Sir Norman. He wrote many books for Christians on world religions, on the uniqueness of Jesus, on the gospel. He spoke to students around the world about following Christ. So from all of that, he had a very successful ministry. We've already seen that even success is a trial. But what isn't so well known about Sir Norman is what happened to his family during that whole time. He had three children. 
The first one was a young lady who became a doctor and then a medical missionary in French West Africa. And during the turmoil that was going on over there, she was gang raped. She was furloughed home. And as she was recovering from that, she went to California to pursue further medical studies prior to going back to Africa. But while she was in California, she tripped, fell down some stairs, hit her head, and died. The second child was also a girl. And she also died from very bizarre circumstances. The third child was a son named Hugh. He was also very brilliant. He went to Cambridge. And he became president of the organization there that produces a very high percentage of prime ministers. He was already politically very well connected. He had a promising, very promising future. But he never graduated. He died at the age of 21 of a brain tumor. In their later years, Norman's wife, Pat, suffered from Alzheimer's. Norman worked with her. He helped her. He loved her and took care of her until finally he himself died. Now, those who knew him said one of the striking things about Sir Norman and Pat was that you never heard from either one of them a bitter word. It's it's hard to imagine the gut-wrenching trials that they went through with what happened to their children and then he with his wife, Pat. Yet, neither of them expressed resentment or anger. In fact, when Sir Norman was very old, he was asked to speak at a large conference to college students. He was so old at that point that he didn't do speaking like that anymore. But he said he would... He would at least come and and, and try to answer some questions. So for almost an hour, he was interviewed before the students with questions about his experience of God across over eight decades. For that whole time, with all of the trials that he had throughout his life, all he did was testify to the goodness of God. Two different people, two different lives, some similarities in having success in life, but two totally different results. Would you rather be a George or a Norman? And I might think, well, the answer is, is obvious. But remember, it was hard and it cost a lot to be a Norman. You're called to be you, obviously, not one of them. You're called to live your life, not theirs. But if you go through life blaming others, being cynical, smart-mouthed, even blaming God himself, you're a George. And you're totally missing what James says in this text. But Norman got it. He embraced what God's word says. Because here, James tells us what we need to know and do and, and take into the very core of our being if we are to be those who imitate our Lord and follow the example of people like Norman Anderson. Of course, we don't determine the kinds of trials that come to us. We can do foolish things and sinful things that that definitely contribute to those trials, but overall, we don't determine our trials. But we do determine our response to our trials. 
One word in verse 2 that's interesting is the word when, or in some translations, whenever. When you fall into various trials, it's not if, but when. Trials will come. And when they do, there are at least three things that we can learn from what James says here that enable us to come through those trials and actually consider it all as joy. First, we need to remember what our goals as Christians are. Verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various difficulties, hard things. And if we stop there, of course, it sounds absurd. Why should we think it's a joy when we experience trials? But James tells us, Count it all joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In other other versions, that word for patience is translated endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. Trials have a purpose. They test your faith. And and it's not primarily a testing of whether you have faith or not. It's a test that refines your faith. It's for the purpose of increasing and strengthening what's there. How do you build muscle in your body? Well, you exercise it. You put strain on it, and over time, it grows. Well, faith grows in a similar way. The testing of your faith, putting strain on it, increases your perseverance. It increases your steadfastness. The testing of your faith increases the ability to stick with it and to persevere through trials. But you might say, well... Wait a minute, that that sounds kind of circular. You know, trials increase perseverance. Perseverance enables you to endure through more trials. So does that mean we endure trials just so we have more perseverance to endure more trials? Of course not. There's a greater purpose. Look at verse 4. But let patience, perseverance, have its perfect work. That you may be perfect and complete Lacking nothing. Would you like to be perfect and complete? Lacking nothing? That's where persevering through trials leads. In the everyday world of, of athletes, musicians, craftsmen, any, anyone who excels in learning skills, they understand this concept. You commonly hear the phrase, no pain, no gain. If you want to get better, you have to endure the pain as you, as you push harder, as you run farther, as, as you keep at it. Unless you keep pushing beyond what you've already accomplished, you'll never get to the point where you can run a marathon or, or perform that, that difficult piece of music or, or do whatever it is you do with excellence. You know you have to train your body and your mind to endure through hard things. But as Christians, in a fallen world, The Bible tells us we need to persevere. Not because perseverance is an end in itself, but because perseverance through trials builds maturity. Persevering through trials transforms you on the inside. It builds maturity in Christ. So James says, when you're struggling under a trial, remember your goals as a Christian. One of your goals is 
in this life is maturity. And this trial you're going through is going to take you one step closer, one step further in maturity. If instead of maturity, your goal is to be as carefree as possible, to live only for the present, to enjoy whatever is right now, well, then clearly, every trial that comes along, it's a lousy pain. It's a frustration. It's something you want to just blame God for and, and move on. You want to get, get on with the rest of life as quickly as possible. But if you look at things from God's perspective, from a Christian perspective, even in the midst of our tears, we can rejoice because we know that God is increasing perseverance and maturity in our lives. You can't fully come into maturity without persevering through trials. And when we understand and accept that and trust in our God, then even in the midst of tears, we can rejoice in what God is doing. I'm pretty sure, ordinarily, if any of us were asked, well, do you want to be mature? We would say, well, of course. Well, James makes it clear. Trials with perseverance, those are the path that we must travel to get there. So if we really want maturity, we can rejoice in trials knowing it's being accomplished. So maturity is one goal, but there's another goal as well, and that's in verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. There's that word again, endure, persevere. And this time it's with the word temptation. And, and one thing to note, any time you see the word trial or temptation in this passage, it's the same Greek root word. It can be translated temptation or trial depending on the context. And when you think about it, every trial has with it a temptation, a temptation to turn away from God. So in verse 2, we saw that the one who perseveres increases in maturity. And that's, that's a reason to count it joy. But now there's, there's another reason. For when he has been approved, when he's come through those trials, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here the focus isn't so much on maturity as it is on the reward. The reward of the crown of life. What's, what's the crown of life? What, what is that reward? Well, it's also mentioned in Revelation 2.10. That's a very similar context. There, our glorified Lord says to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear any, <clears throat> any of those things which you are about to suffer. Sounds like some trials are coming, right? Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this, this crown of life is after death. It's the ultimate reward at the end. It's the reward of eternal life with Christ. In other words, what James is saying here is we are to live now with a value system that is beyond now, that is beyond this life. The value systems all around us, they're tied to the here and now. They say, Pursue your own peace and happiness. Make me comfortable. Make me happy. 
Get what you can now. If it feels good, go for it. Look out for number one. All of those kinds of things. And if your value system is like that, what James is saying here, it makes no sense at all. Rejoice in trials? That's nuts. But if you're a Christian and you're living for a reward beyond this life, then you can understand that the trials that come our way, well, they're one of the things that build maturity and prepare us for eternity beyond this life that we're looking for. And that's, that's the perspective Jesus was giving us in Matthew 6.20 when he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You must do all that you can to nurture in yourself a God-oriented perspective so that your imagination, your thought life, your value system, what you pursue, your daydreams, so they're not all wrapped up in the here and now. There's, there's something much greater, much more important. So when you're struggling under a trial, remember the Christian's goals of maturity and eternal life with Christ. And even in the midst of that trial, you can rejoice because you're on the path. You're actually on the path to obtain those goals. So that's the first thing James tells us. Remember the Christian's goals, maturity and eternal life. The second thing he tells us is to understand and beware of temptation. He's been talking about trials, and now in verse 13 he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. And I've already said, anytime you see temptation or trial, they're the same Greek root word. And we have to look at the context to figure out which one is being talked about. In this, this whole passage, James goes back and forth between temptations and trials because, really, that's the way we experience them. We face a trial, a difficult thing, and that same trial is both an opportunity to grow in maturity and it can also be a temptation to sin. And why is that? Well, a trial becomes a temptation because of something in us. Because we're fallen. God doesn't test people in the sense, or God does test people in the sense that he purposely brings them into situations where their willingness to obey him is stretched. Where they have to learn perseverance. And here in this verse, both senses really of the word, trial, of, of trial and temptation, they're really both in play. We could paraphrase the sentence as, if you are tempted during these trials, don't say, God is tempting me. That's not what's going on there. We do know that God gives us trials. He tests our faith for the purpose of refining and strengthening it. Genesis 22 explicitly says that God tested Abraham in the matter of his son. In Judges 2, God didn't drive out the nations, so... He could test Israel. Second Chronicles 32. God tested King Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. So God uses trials in order to test his people's faith. In order to decrease their pride. 
in order to build their perseverance and their maturity and in order to give them that long-term perspective. But even though he uses trials that way, he never, ever, ever does that to cause you to sin or to destroy your faith. God doesn't do that. James continues in verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. No. Temptation doesn't come from God. So where does it come from? Well, a a, a true account of temptation is found in verses 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. With the Greek words used here, this is a fishing metaphor. As a fisherman, you want to find, find out what, what, the, what are the fish biting on. I mean, they don't just bite on anything, but there's something that will tempt them. Something they'll think looks good. Maybe it's a black lizard with a chartreuse tail or some kind of spinner. Something that will interest them. And when you find the right thing and put it in front of them with just the right movement, it entices them. They're drawn to it and they bite and you set the hook. Now for a fish, there's nothing morally wrong with wanting something that looks like a good morsel of food. But for us, we have sinful desires. We're inclined to doubt God, to trust in ourselves. We complain because something didn't turn out the way we wanted it. We're inclined to see sexual sin as enticing, like George did. Because of our self-centeredness, our greediness, our pride, we're tempted and we take the bait. In the trial, we respond with sin. So the temptation that is there, it, it doesn't come from God. It comes from our sinful desires. Then in verse 15, James changes the metaphor. He says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So now in this metaphor, the mother is desire. Sinful desire. And the child that is conceived is sin. And when that child is full grown, there is only death. The trial was intended to produce perseverance, maturity, eternal life. But giving in to our sinful desires yields the opposite, death. Now, of course, it always starts with just a little temptation. A selfish desire to lash out in anger because you're tired of it all. Or to grab something for yourself because after all you've been through, you deserve it. Whatever is a temptation for you, the desire gives way to the act. The act leads to another act and another one that eventually develops a sinful habit. The habit forms your character and at the end, you've turned from God and there's only death. What James is saying is in this fallen, broken world, we will be tested. It will happen. But if when we're tested, 
We're drawn away to curse God or to nurture bitterness, to indulge in the sin. It's, it's because of who we are. It's because of what we are. And, and when you understand that, when you understand how you are tempted and what tempts you, then you can better fight against it. You can do things to avoid those temptations or ask others to help you and hold you accountable. You can look in the scriptures, read and memorize things that specifically deal with those temptations that you know are difficult for you. And, and pray over those scriptures, asking God to strengthen you so that you do not sin. Because it's clear as we look around, one person faces a test and, and responds to temptation with sin. Another person may face the exact same test. And they use that test as a stepping stone to grace, into maturity, and to growth. The same test in two different people produces different results. And so the difference isn't the test. It's us and the way we respond. So in the midst of trials, we need to understand and beware of the temptation so that we can fight against it. God does give tests. But as James says, God doesn't give the temptation. He builds you. He he tests you to build you. He never puts something in front of you because he wants you to fall. And that brings us to the third thing that James says in regard to trials. Remember the goodness of God. Often, especially in hard trials, we feel abandoned. We feel crushed. Even in despair. And in the midst of that, we have to remember God is good. Verse 16, that's a transition from temptations to God's goodness. That's what it says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We could paraphrase it. Don't kid yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't allow yourself to wallow in self-pity. Don't allow yourself to blame God. God is good. And then look as he follows in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In, In all of creation, What's the most stable thing that you can think of? Something that just doesn't change. We know it's, it's nothing that we build. Because eventually time or the weather, a tornado, an earthquake, something breaks it down. And, and the earth, it's not that stable. I mean, there are earthquakes, volcanoes, erosion. Probably the most stable thing would be the stars. All of the constellations, it seems like they've been there forever. There's a North Star. We we navigate by it. The sun comes up and goes down every day. Those all seem pretty stable. Yet, day by day, through the years, even those things change. There's movement that we can see in those heavenly bodies. And and we know astronomers, they've, they've seen that even the stars, as the galaxy is spinning The stars are moving away from one another. So even the most stable thing that we know in the universe, it's constantly shifting. 
but not God. And that's the point here. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from a from above, and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He made the stars. Sure, they change. God alone is absolutely stable. He doesn't change, and what he gives are good and perfect gifts because he is good. He perfectly, immovably, unchangeably good. He doesn't have bad days. He can never be anything other than good. So in this broken and rebellious, sin-torn world, he is still always unchangeably good. So when you feel abandoned and crushed, and then, then remember. Remember God's goodness. And, and do you want to see the ultimate proof of that goodness? Well, that's in verse 18 said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That bringing us forth, the birth that James is talking about, it's, it's not the birth of our creation. It's new birth. That expression, the word of truth, it only shows up five times in the New Testament. And every time, it refers to the gospel. Ephesians 1.13 is... Is very clear and explicit. There it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. So this passage is saying, He chose to give us birth, new birth, through the gospel that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. In other words, He could have written us all off. In, in perfect justice, he would have been just to condemn us all. But in the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness, we have the gospel. For the ultimate proof, you look to the cross. God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to give us new birth through his son, through the word of truth. <clears throat> a professor where I went to seminary has a daughter named Tiffany. And at one point, their family was living in England, and Tiffany's best friend was named Melissa, and she lived in Chicago. And during Tiffany's first year of college, Melissa was going to fly to England and spend Christmas with them. And the night before they were supposed to go pick up Melissa at the airport, they got a call from Melissa's parents. Melissa wasn't coming. She had just been diagnosed with leukemia. By Easter, things were going poorly and Melissa was in the hospital. Tiffany left college and she went to Chicago to be with Melissa. Every day she spent many hours in the hospital taking care of her, nursing. Melissa was a former athlete, but she was skin and bones by this point. And Melissa died in June. It seemed like Tiffany was handling the grief and the sorrow pretty well. But that fall, her father heard her crying in a room, and he went in and he asked her what was wrong. And through her, her tears, she said, God could have saved my best friend, but he didn't. I hate him. 
And he responded quite well. He said, I'm glad you told me. Because God knows what you think anyway, so you might as well tell the truth. And in some ways, you're not saying all that much more than what some of the psalmists say when they really feel kicked in the teeth. But before you decide that God doesn't love you, you have to think about two things. First, do you want a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp? He's very powerful, but he's under the control of whoever holds the lamp. Do you want a God who only does what you tell him to do? Because if that's so, who's God? Or do you want a God who is so big that sometimes, maybe a lot of times, he'll do things you don't understand? And the second thing is, yes, you lost your best friend. You didn't have a choice in it. God did something that he had a choice about. He didn't have to, but he gave his own son for you and for your best friend who died. So before you become too convinced that God doesn't care for you, measure things in terms of that little hill outside Jerusalem on the cross. You see what this passage is saying? When you feel abandoned, when you feel crushed in despair, don't be deceived. Don't let your understanding and your faith get messed up by what's going on. Remember, God is good. He's more good than you can ever know. If we really want to be frank and honest, we live in a fallen world, and in a sense, you are going to get kicked in the teeth. Sooner or later, you will suffer. Sooner or later, you'll lose a child, or a parent, or a sibling. Sooner or later, you'll get fired, or laid off. Sooner or later, you'll get cancer, or some other disease. And and sooner or later, you will either be bereaved or you will bereave someone else. And those two things are inevitable. And no matter when it happens, death is always untimely. It always hurts. This is a fallen world. And although there are so many traces of God's glory and beauty that are still here, so many things that we can see that are wonderful, yet this is a world that's under the curse. And under the curse, sooner or later, bad stuff happens. And when it does, you'll grieve. You may agonize and struggle. And, And the question is, will you come through it like George or like Norman? You'll either grow and become better, or you'll become bitter for Jesus' sake, for your sake, for the church's sake, for your children's sake. When you're feeling crushed and even in despair, remember God's goodness. Go back to the cross again and again and again. Because only Jesus can be your Savior. You must trust Him, both in 
the here and now, for this life and for the life to come. Otherwise, there is no hope. The truth of the matter is that God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. He's more interested in your faithfulness than in your financial success. He's more interested in your purity than in your power. He's more interested in your perseverance than that you look good. He's more interested in your self-control than in your sense of feeling good. He's more interested in your long-term joy than in your short-term fun. He's more interested in your good than in your wants. Really let it sink in. God is more interested in you than you are. So, when you're in a trial, whether whether it's an amazing trial of success or a hard trial of tragedy or, or loss, how do you consider it joy? Well, first, remember. Remember what your goals as a Christian are. Maturity and eternal life with Him. That's where you want to go. And second, understand and beware of the temptations that you have. Are you in a trial right now that that maybe you've already fallen into sin? Have you become bitter or, or angry or given up? Repent. Repent of that and turn back to God. Pray for perseverance. Seek help and encouragement from others and and resist that temptation. And then third, no matter how hard the trial is, remember that God is good. He's proven it by giving His Son for you and making you His child. Get to know Him and His love for you. He's just giving you one more increment of growth and maturity And he's preparing you more and more for an eternal life with him that is is good beyond anything that you can imagine. So yes, consider it joy when trials come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. Enable us to grasp and depend upon your goodness in the midst of the trials we each go through. May we respond in faith and grow in maturity so that more and more we become conformed to the image of Christ. In this way, give us the perspective to know joy with every trial we experience. In Jesus' name, amen.